All right, so here we are in Genesis chapter 13. And in Genesis 13, what we're about to see here is the separation of Abraham and Lot. Because Abraham and Lot, these two men, were actually one people. And we've showed uh, in previous weeks how you know this is probably thousands of people that we're talking about. You know, maybe not, probably not tens of thousands, but for sure, we're, you know, we're talking uh, well over a thousand people here. This is a large group of people and they are, they're kind of uh, wandering around. They go in there in Bethel for a while and then they ended up going down to Egypt. And we all remember what happened uh, last Wednesday. Uh, that was when, you know, Sarah was beautiful. Pharaoh took her. And then God ends up cursing Pharaoh's house. And then after that, he's kind of scared of Abraham and pretty much drives him out of the land. And so now Abraham, he's back in Bethel. And then we're going to see, uh, as we go through this chapter, the separation, basically the separating of one people, them becoming two. And Abraham, of course, his people ended up becoming Israel. Lots of people end up becoming the Ammonites and the Moabites, and they would eventually be enemies with each other. And I, and then, you know, we're going to see later as we get to Genesis, really, you know, why, a lot, you know, why his group became wicked. And so we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. But let's go ahead and start reading in verse one. It says, and Abram went up out of Egypt and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And remember, we saw before where Abram did that, how he went and he called on the name of the Lord, just like the sons of Seth did in the days of Enos. Then men began to call upon the Lord. And, and we've been showing how God's been looking for a people. God has always been looking for a people to serve him. You know, the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout the earth, looking for that man whose heart is perfect towards him. God's looking for people who just want to serve him, who want to have a relationship with him. God's looking for that. And it's a good thing. And it's something important that, you know, we have very easy access to God today because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And we, and I think we take it for granted. But understand, back during this day especially, this kind of thing was extremely rare. And Abraham, he's, he's pretty much about it. And there, and we see Abram everywhere he'd go, he would build an altar, he'd call on the Lord. And so now he's back in this place where he's met with God before, we, where he had built an altar to the Lord. And it's a place that's called Bethel. Okay? Now, this is just kind of an interesting thing uh, about Bethel. Bethel means house of God. And so here's a question, all right? And I'm going to bring up some things that I don't really know the answers to, some things specifically that I'm looking for answers to right now. I'm hoping this year to maybe get some answers to, but at the same time, I might find out that there's no way of knowing. And that is, here, and here's what I want to know. What is it about certain places that makes them so special to God? Because it does seem like certain locations are very special. For example, Jerusalem. Okay, there's no doubt Jerusalem was a very special place to God. That is where that is the city where God chose to put his name. It's in Mount Zion, 
which is also a very special place that's in Jerusalem, where God wanted his temple to be built. It was the place where Abraham, probably the place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac or was going to sacrifice Isaac. It's the place where Jesus is going to rule and reign from during his millennial kingdom. And it's the place where Melchizedek, who I believe was Jesus, dwelt even before Abraham. So you can say, well, it's great because of the history and all the things that happened there. But the thing is, before anything really happened there, Melchizedek was there. So it, what is it about that place? I, I really don't know for sure. What is it about Bethel, It's known, which means house of God? Because how did it get that name, house of God? What made this place special? Because look back at chapter 12, it says in verse 7, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto thy seed, Will I give this land? And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. And he removed thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So we see two different times here where Abram built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. But that name Bethel didn't come until later. Okay, Actually, when this happened here, Genesis calls it Bethel. But we're going to see later in Genesis, it didn't get that name until later. It was actually called Luz. During this time, turn over to Genesis chapter 28 and verse 16. So you might not think this is that interesting. I actually think this is interesting. This is something that I'm just I'm really interested in specifically this year for, you know, for good reasons. But it says in verse 16, and Jacob awaked out of his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place that this is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone and he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. So so he's like, well, why doesn't it call it Bethel when Abram was there? Because, again, this is showing Israel their history of where Abram sojourned. And they all knew where Bethel was. That was a place they were familiar with. You know, and so uh, but that name did not come until later, because this is where Jacob, you know, the story of Jacob's ladder, where he sees that. So here's the question, you know. All right, Jacob sees this ladder. There's angels ascending and descending. Is there literally a gateway to heaven in Bethel? I don't know. You know, is, so is that why that place is special? Or was this place special to God because this was the place where Abram, who was a very special individual, two different times made an altar and called to the Lord? You know, and, you know, is, is that what made it special? I don't know. I just think it's interesting that, you know, two different times Abram has, you know, uh, a time with God there. And then two generations later with Jacob, he also interacts with God there. It just seems like there's something about Bethel that's very special to God. And I honestly don't know for sure what it is, but you better believe I'm curious and I'm paying attention. And I think, you know, and it's okay to have questions like that and not really know the answer to them. Okay. It's just something, you know, maybe... Uh, you know, you'll find, we'll find out later. Maybe the Lord will, you know, reveal something else. Maybe I'm missing something, but I just wanted to put that out there because it is interesting different places in the Bible that do seem to have special significance. But what is special about those places? I don't always know for sure. Is it what took place there? You know, but 
sometimes it seems like the place is already special. So I, I really don't know that, but I think it's interesting, something we ought to think about. But anyway, uh, I personally believe the place was special, though, because of what happened there with Abraham. And so it was there with Abraham that God told him, I'm going to make of thee a great nation. I'm going to multiply your seed. And God didn't, he didn't keep that promise through Ishmael. He kept it through Isaac. And then with Isaacs, he didn't keep that promise through Esau. He kept it through Jacob, who he named Israel. And that is what his people ended up being called after that time. So there definitely was something special about that place. And it's very, it was very special in Israel's history. So look at verse 5 of chapter 13. It says, And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the Herman of Abram's cattle and the Herman of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. So obviously this is a large amount of people. The land can't contain them. Okay? And the land of Bethel, or that area of Bethel, it's, it's an area that's just a little bit north of Jerusalem. It's not real far from there. But, you know, this land, um, you know, it's a decent-sized land. It's gonna, you know, it's, this is, remember, this is more than just Abram, Lot, and Sarah. This is a lot of people, there, and they are both rich. They have great possessions. They have a great deal of servants. And so it's just getting crowded. They're all, you know... You know, all Lot's cattle eating Abraham's cattle, or, you know, grass, his cattle's grass and things. And so they're fighting over each other. So, like, you know, we can't have this kind of conflict between us. You know, we're brothers. We love each other. You know, we're going to have to separate. And so it says in verse 8, And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen. For we are brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lift up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've heard messages in my life about how you know, Lot made the wrong choice here. You know, and, and I think this is just an example of, I don't know for sure the Lord's trying to teach us a lesson here or if it's just telling us what happened. Because Abraham, you know, because he's kind, because he's loving, because he knows God's going to bless him either way, you know, he gives Lot the choice. Hey, you choose because he wants to keep the relationship good. And if Abraham chooses, then, you know, it'd be easy for Lot to say, well, you picked a good land. He did. He just told him, whichever way you go, I'll go the opposite direction. And Lot chose a land that the Bible compares to Eden. Okay? Now, who wouldn't want to go stay in a land like that? Okay? Who, you know, doesn't it kind of make sense? I mean, you got cattle, you got all this. Why would you go to the desert? You know, I would want to go to the well-watered area. And what's interesting, too, you know, that particular land today is not good land at all. Because notice, too, it says this is before God destroyed Sodom. Okay, before the Sodomites went and corrupted the land and defiled the land and brought a curse upon it forever. 
And this is just a side note too. Maybe we'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 19. Did you know that that land of Sodom is still not going to be inhabited during the millennial kingdom? So that, again, geographical places often are special in some ways, you know, for the good and sometimes for the bad. That land's never making a comeback. Okay? Why? Because God destroyed that and He destroyed it good. Why did God? Why, why was God so harsh in that? He wanted to make sure everybody knew what He thought about Sodomites. That's why. And he wanted, and so uh, I think it's important that we remember that. But you know, I don't think you know. And so the, the truth is, you know, I think if Lot did anything wrong, I do think he shouldn't have. I think he should have looked into who the inhabitants of that land were. You know, and I don't know. The Bible does not tell us. That what he did here was wrong. We're just kind of assuming. But, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I don't have a huge problem with somebody preaching and saying, you know, and using a principle there and saying, you know, hey, before you go and move somewhere, you know, don't just move somewhere because the money's good. You know, you got to ask yourself, is this a good place to raise a family? That's a very important question. You've got people all the time that go and they will move their families somewhere for a job and there's no good church there at all. And it's so funny, too, how people, they'll criticize folks who move to an area for a church, but that nobody bats an eye at somebody moving somewhere for a job. And I'm, I'm sorry, I think where you have your family, what kind of people you have your family around is more important than what kind of money you're bringing in. And, you know, where Lot went, he definitely prospered where he went. We see a short time later, Lot, he's sitting in the gate of Sodom. Lot, Lot is a leader in Sodom. Why? Because he was a very prosperous man. He was very wealthy. He probably did very well in the land of Sodom. But did Sodom help his family out at all? No, it did not. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm all for trying to make money. I'm all for, you know, doing whatever you can in that area. But get your priorities right and don't sacrifice your families for a few extra bucks. It's not worth it. Not worth it at all. So, yeah, there are places that are better financially, but they're not good places to raise a family. And I think, you know, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to go preaching a separate message here, but you know, when it comes to where you live, I think church ought to be one of the most, one of the main things. Obviously, you got to be able to provide for your family. You know, don't just go move, you know, out in the middle of the desert in Wyoming somewhere, you know, where you're not going to be around any people and, you know, there's no jobs or anything because there's just, there's a good church. You got to, you got to be able to have, to provide too. Okay. Obviously, you got to do that, but, you know, those are things you got to factor in. And I, uh, people just don't care about that these days. And so I find it very frustrating when I hear people acting like you're weird and you're in a cult if you move your family to go to a good church. So, you know, th- that's pretty hypocritical if you ask me. And it's okay to move your family, too, to a church that has Bible college. I don't know if you all realize that, but big churches, that happens all the time, but nobody's ever questioned that. But that's another that's another side note there. But look what it says in verse... Um, so verse 11 so then Lot chose them all the plains of Jordan and Lot journeyed east and they separated themselves the one from the other so Lot is now uh, in that land or pitched his tent towards Sodom and so while the land was waste today that wasn't always the case Okay, now go ahead and turn over to Ezekiel chapter 16 because let's go ahead and talk for just a minute here about why the land 
of Sodom was bad, right? Or what made the land of Sodom go bad? Because people will often go to Ezekiel chapter 16 here and try to tell you that God didn't punish or destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of homosexuality. You know, He punished it because they weren't hospitable. That's what they'll try to say. But let's, let's go ahead and let's look at what the Bible actually teaches us. And then let's compare it to our own history in our country. And let's see if we can't figure a few things out. So it says in verse 49, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride. Boy, isn't it interesting? The slogan for the queers. Pride. Why do they have to keep mentioning pride? Why do they have to keep using that word? Why do they have to keep telling their people, be proud, be proud, be proud? Okay? Because everybody knows they should be ashamed. Just like Sodom should have been ashamed. The Bible says they declare their sin is Sodom. When they should be ashamed of themselves, they don't. They, they have this attitude of being proud. It's something they should be ashamed of. You know, people used to be ashamed of the fact that they were perverts. They, you know, they used to know it was wrong, and they even knew something was wrong with them. You know, and boy, you know, I, I, I you know, I don't, I hate to talk talk about this right now, but we're talking about Sodom right now. I got to do it. I watched a movie years ago. It's an Audrey Hepburn movie. It's an old black and white movie where a rumor got out about the two women that, that ran a, a girls' boarding school that they were lesbians. And what was interesting on the movie, the one of the females there, people were telling him this so much, she started to believe it about herself. And, all, and it was like she didn't even know what one was. She always knew something was wrong and something was different about her. And it was like she finally came to the realization that she was, in fact, a lesbian. And you know what she did in that movie? She went and she hung herself. And you say, you know, what? she was ashamed. You know, it was, it was so humiliating because that was the mentality back then. But, you know, when a society starts to celebrate that kind of thing... That is not good, folks. They are on their way to destruction. And pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And mark my words, you know, our country will be destroyed. Okay? This LGBT stuff is what is going to destroy our nation. There's no doubt about that. It's already happening. But it says pride, fullness of bread. Boy, we have fullness of bread in our country. Well, you better believe, you know, what, what's one of the big problems we have, you know, the big crises we're facing? Obesity. I mean, our country struggles with that more than any place. Why? Fullness of bread. Boy, we, we're two for two so far in the United States. Pride, fullness of bread. Um, abundance of idleness. Huh. Now, we've really got that going on right now in our country. We are celebrating idleness right now. You're a hero. This is a new thing in 2020. If you're idle and you're sitting in your house on your couch watching Netflix all day, you're a hero, folks. You're you know, right up there with the essential workers, you know, the people that are driving trucks and, you know, stocking shelves. Y'all are heroes right now. We're going to celebrate you. Okay? Instead of bringing in the cops, because after 9-11, that's when everybody started bringing in the cops and the firemen and the EMTs and honoring them. So now, in 2020, now with a new crisis, we're going to start bringing in the truck drivers and the essential workers and all these people, and we're going to start celebrating them. And you know what? While we're at that, let's include the video gamers, too, that won't leave their house, because they're heroes, too, right now. 
you know what? Let's be the first ones to do it. You know, the trendies beat us to doing all the other stuff. We're going to, you know, we're going to next week, we're going to call it couch potato Sunday and we're going to go and we are going to honor all the couch potatoes that just sit around, watch TV, play video games. They're heroes. Okay. No, we're not going to do that, but just wait, just wait. As soon as Paul Chapel has a big service, where he has all the truck drivers come up and they're honoring them and all these other essential type workers, all the other Baptist churches will be doing it too. You know, we need to start something. You know, I like, you know, why, why can't we be the trendies and the trendsetters? It's just stupid. I'm not, I'm not wasting my time with that. Okay? And I'm not, I know we got truck drivers in here. God bless you, you know? But you're just as heroic as you were. You know, your job's easier now. Nobody's on the road. <laughs> you know, so you were more heroic before all this happened. But anyway, so we're three for three. Abundance of idleness was in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Now, I do believe in our country, this is one area where we're a little different. We're, but we're almost too good to the poor and needy. Do you all understand that? We're almost, but I do believe this is one area where we have been blessed. It is, it's hard to find hungry people. In most places, there are places, but most of the places too, where you find the hungry people, it's because the stinking parents are, you know, selling the link cards and things like that. And, you know, keeping these things from the kids. There are people that slip through the cracks, you know, kids that just, you know, you know, the system misses them. But I don't think we can, I, I think this is one area though, where our country, you know, I think we're doing good. In fact, we're probably doing too good because we're actually enabling people to be lazy. And so uh, I don't know for sure that I can, I can give us an A on this one because we help to the point where we hurt people. So, but I, I, I won't give us a mark on that one. I'm going to give us that one. We've got that going, so we're better than Sodom and Gomorrah, at least in something. It says, verse 50, and we're haughty. Okay? Now, we've definitely got that going on. And it says, and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. So right there is your perversion and things. And people will say, you know, the first thing God mentioned was pride. The last thing he mentioned was abomination. It's a progression, folks. These things don't happen overnight. You don't just turn into a filthy animal overnight. Okay, It takes time to get that perverted, and that's exactly what happened in Sodom. Sodom didn't get, the way, get that way overnight. It's something that happened. It was a progression. And so what we're seeing here in Ezekiel is it's showing us that progression. It's showing us exactly what happened. So understand, you know, when people bring that up, they're just wanting to avoid you know, talking about abominations part. But that's where it ends. Because you know what? God didn't destroy Sodom. When they were just proud. God didn't destroy Sodom when they were just had the abundance of idleness. You know what? It was when they were committing abominations. God decided to destroy the city the night that the whole town is trying to rape the two men, the two angels that had come into the town to warn Lot. That's when God destroyed them. So just keep, you know, keep that in mind when you have the proud, when you're proud, when you're haughty, when you're idle, all those things, you can come back from that kind of thing. But once you've been given over to that reprobate mind and you're burning in your lust towards the same sex, then it's, you're long gone at that point. Okay. Now you're that you're there. Okay. You are, you're a reprobate at that point. So, um, you know, you need a, these are important facts. You need to understand that people often forget. 
that they just ignore. So it says in verse 12, Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. So this is where, right here, is when they basically became uh, two nations, or when that one group split. So verse 13, Genesis 13, verse 13, 13 words in Genesis 13. I'm not a numerology guy, but folks... In the numerology world, 13 is the number of rebellion. Okay? I don't know. I think that's just a little inter interesting fact right there. But count them. 13 words, thir 13 chapter, 13 verse, 13 words. Look what it says. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Exceedingly. All right. Now, what is that? Th that verse right there proves that not all sins are equal. Okay, what does that word exceeding mean? Exceeding, the, de the modern de definition is extraordinary or exceptional. Okay? You know, that means you've, you, you've exceeded the normal sinner. You've exceeded that normal wicked person. You're worse than they are. That's what that's saying right there. You know, the 1828 de definition is going beyond, surpassing, excelling, outdoing. So, yes, we're all sinners, but the men of Sodom, they outdid normal sinners. You know, there were a lot of other wicked cities during that time. Babel was wicked. But, you know, the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners exceeding. Because what they did was worse. Now, where does, where does this idea that all sins are equal come from? Because that is something that is preached a lot. That is something that is quoted a lot. Well, you know, how dare you judge, you know, I mean, we're all sinners. You know, how dare you say one thing about one person's sin and you downplay other sin? You know, you're just being a hypocrite. You know, what does it say in, you know, after Romans chapter 1, when you get in Romans chapter 2, you know, who art thou that judgest? You know, I mean, you know, thou that judgest, knows thou not thou doest the same thing? You know, it's all the same. That, that, where, where does that come from? Okay, well, the main verse where people get mixed up on this is in James 2. In verse 10, it says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor, transgressor of the law. Okay. Now, what is that teaching right there? Is that teaching all sins are equal? No, it's teaching all sin makes you a sinner. Okay? Even if you've never killed anybody, okay, if you've committed any other sin, you are still a sinner and you need to get saved. Now, that's what that means. And that's also what it means. We're not going to take time to go there. When you go to Romans 1 and Romans chapter 2, in Romans 1, it's talking about the reprobates. It's talking about, you know, the Gentiles and just how wicked they are. When you get to chapter 2, you've got the Jews who they weren't as bad as the Greeks. You know, they had some morals, but you know what? They were sinners too. So they're looking at the Gentiles and thinking, well, there's no way they're going to heaven. Look how bad their sins are. Look at all the things that we do. We're definitely going to heaven. And you know what God's saying to them? He's saying, you know what? You're sinners too. 
You might not have done what they've done, but you're still a sinner and you still need to get saved. And that's why in Romans 3, he says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why it says in verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. That's why it's saying all those things, because the Jews had this attitude, well, we're not as bad as them, therefore, we don't need a Savior. And they were right. They weren't as bad as them, but they were equally in need of a Savior. But that doesn't make all sin equal, because God didn't put the death penalty on all sins, did He? Some sins had the death penalty. Some sins had them laying stripes on you. Some sins, just you had to make restitution. You know, some sins you had to go sacrifice an animal. There was all the different sins had different consequences. You know, one who had done something less, he would get many or he'd get fewer stripes than one who had done something bigger. Why? Because of the fact that not all sins are the same. For example, mixed fabrics. What does everybody want to bring up? What does everybody, and I'm planning on doing a video on this. I'm not even going to show you all the scriptures on this. Whenever you want to bring up how bad homosexuality is, well, what about mixed fabrics? You know, you're wearing a polyester tie, you know, with your wool shirt right there. Listen to ignoramus, all right? First off, the Bible never says you can't wear different fabrics at one time. For example, John the Baptist wore camel's hair and a leather girdle. But they were not supposed to wear woolen and fiber that were they weren't supposed that were woven together is what they weren't supposed to do. Why is that? That's the same where the Bible mentions that's the same place where it says not to plow with an ox or an ass together, which isn't that just common sense? Where it says not to sow mingle your seed when you sow it, doesn't that just kind of make sense too? Not to be mixing the seeds when you're going to go plant. Go talk to a farmer and ask if that's a good idea. Go ask the farmers where they have the cornfield and you know they have, they have the corn in one section and they have the beans in another section. Why they don't just mix it? Go go ask them why they don't do that. Are they doing that to follow the law? All right. Are they doing it because you know you know they're creating division and they're racist towards seeds and don't believe in integration? You know, what, what's going on here? You know, it's just called common sense. And what did Jesus say? No man soweth a piece of a new cloth onto an old garment. Why? Because then the rent will be made worse. Why? Because fa- fabric, it tends to shrink, doesn't it? After it gets wet and over time, it tends to shrink. And so if you go and you put new cloth on an old garment that has already shrunk, and then you get that new cloth on there, it's going to... It's just going to make the rip even worse. And if you're going and you're interweaving different types of fabric together, you know what's going to happen? Those clothes are just going to, those material, the material is going to tear apart. It's just common sense. Okay. It's just laws that God's given. Hey, you know, you need to do things in a practical way. He wanted them to do things in a decent way. But does anybody know what the penalty was for the mixed fabrics? The Bible doesn't say. It didn't even, it didn't even list one. Why? Because it probably didn't happen. I don't even know if I, I, you know, I've never seen anybody try to plow with an ox or an ass together. I doubt anybody tries that. I've never seen a farmer try to mix seeds together. And I don't, and it just wouldn't be practical to mix your, you know, to weave different types of fabrics together. I don't know if anybody's doing that. It's possible. You know, maybe some of you ladies know a little more about that than I do. These are just common sense things. And so if there was a problem, some guy just wanted to be rebellious, the judges would have dealt with it. 
And how they would have dealt with it, I don't know. Uh, we, we don't see any examples in the Bible, but I tell you what, we do see examples of people who violated the laws, you know, nature's laws, when it came to sodomy. We know what God thinks about that. I don't see in Jude where God's talking about the cities that he punished because of the mixed fabrics. I don't, I don't see that. But I do see Sodom and Gomorrah constantly being mentioned in the New Testament as an example to all of us. So just it's amazing how desperate people are to just justify perversion. So desperate. And the thing is, it's one thing when you hear that from the atheists and the queers, but it's another thing when I hear it from Christian people bringing that up. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna use that as an excuse. Why do you want to justify that so bad? It's, it's, just, it's, it's disgusting how badly people want to fit in with the world. But you know what? You don't want to fit in with those people. They'll destroy your family just like they did with Lot's. They, there's no doubt they destroyed Lot's family. So just understand, all sins are not equal. Okay? And ultimately, what led to the destruction of the nations that came from Lot, okay, the Moabites and the Ammonites, it was his time in Sodom. I believe if Lot would have stayed closer to Abraham, if Lot hadn't gone to Sodom, I think Lot would have done better. In fact, this is just my opinion, if I may just interject my opinion right here, I personally think if Abraham would have went and dwelt in the land of Sodom, I think he'd eventually just taken them guys over and wiped them out. Because we're going to see later, they did, you know, they did end up getting captured by, uh, you know, by another king, and Abraham had to come and fight for them. You know why? Because girly men don't fight well. And so what did they do? They went, whenever they got in trouble, they went and got a bunch of heterosexuals to come along and take care of business for them. We'll be talking about that later when we get when we get to that chapter. But the thing is, as they got wicked, Abraham being the godly man that he was, I think he'd have nipped that stuff there. I think he'd have either straightened them out or he would have wiped them out, is what I think he would have done. If he was able to defeat the armies that had taken them captive, you think he could have taken them? He for sure could have taken them. And I believe that's exactly what he would have. But... You know, that's just, that, you know, that's just speculation, but I think it just makes sense based on what happened. Well, but anyway, so Lot and his family, they ended up leaving Sodom, but you know what? Sodom never left their family, did they? Yeah, they got out of there, but Sodom was with their family because what would even make his daughters think to do what they did? You know, and, uh, so there's, there's some bad, bad influence there. So often when we talk about Lot's failure too, to get 10 people saved, we often think he only failed with his family because it's like, man, how come he couldn't, you know, get just his family saved? We know he had at least minimum four daughters because he had two daughters when he left and he had daughters that were married. So, you know, if he's got at least four daughters, he's got two son-in-laws, there's him and his wife. Chances are there were some grandkids, you know, 10 should have been pretty easy for him. And we often look at that as a big failure. But in reality, Lot was an even bigger failure than that. Because remember, it wasn't just Lot and his family that went to Sodom, was it? He's got all of his servants too. His household was not just those related to him biologically. It was his entire household. And so when all the men of Sodom are coming at those angels, you understand these are Lot's servants. These are his men too. That's how much they had in common. They had just intermingled with those people to where they're committing the same abominations and all of them died. All those people, those herdmen of lots, 
that were there, those people, they all died in Sodom. They didn't come out with Lot. It was just it was just him and his daughters. And his wife didn't she got out, but not real far out. Ended up turning to a pillar of salt. But Abraham, he was not like this. In fact, that's why God chose Abraham. Look at what it says in Genesis 18 and verse 17. It says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide this thing from Abraham, that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Listen to this. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. Children and household. These are all the servants. Okay, These are everybody, not just the, not just the children. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. So God chose Abraham because God knew Abraham's going to be the right kind of leader. God is looking for a people. God is looking to raise up a nation, and God knew with Abraham, this is a guy that I can trust. He's one that's actually going to lead the right way, unlike everyone we'd seen from the past. Because Seth's line went bad, didn't they? We see Noah when he came out of the ark. The first story we see about him after he comes out of the ark is he's getting drunk. And then who knows what's happening with Ham. And then, not long after that, we've got the Tower of Babel. So nobody has stepped up to be a leader and to have a godly nation at this point, but Abraham was going to. And God knew that about Abraham. So, you know, God ended up giving Abraham this information. God let Abraham know what he was about to do when it came to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I believe God did that because God knew that Abraham was going to be concerned because his nephew Lot was there. And it was like he's kind of given him a chance to talk him out of it and you know we'll see that story later when we get uh, when we get to chapter 18 but look at verse 14 of genesis chapter 13 it says and the lord said unto abram after the lot was separated from him lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward for the land which thou seest to thee will i give it and to thy seed forever and i will make thy seed as the dust of the earth so that if a man can number the dust of the earth then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land and the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and builded there an altar to the Lord. So this is where God is promising that land. And God specifically, uh, you know, he points out the land. Now, it doesn't give us the description of it here as far as where it was. But understand, the land that God gave to Abram is much larger than what is there today. You know, it was, uh, you know, from the Euphrates to the Red Sea, I believe it was. I, I, I'll, I'll be, when we get to that chapter, uh, I might get some maps up there and show you. I don't want to, I don't want to mess that up. But when you see the amount of land that God promised to Abraham, I find it rather interesting because it is, it's very, a large amount of land. That you know covers a lot of you know Syria. I think even goes into Iraq and places like that. The, and the truth is, though, Israel never possessed all of that land. 
They, they never possessed all that land. A lot of people think they do because in Joshua or Judges, it says that God gave them all the land that he had promised to their fathers. But that's not referring to you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's referring to the ones who came out of Egypt is, is what that's referring to. And when God, promised, when God gave them the land, God gave that, he gave different borders then. And you say, so why is that? What happened? Well, one thing that we see when it comes to the land that God promised Abraham, each one of those generations made some mistakes and did some things that they shouldn't have done that caused them, I believe, to lose some of that land. And so you say, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay, This land that God promised, he gave it to Abraham on promise. He said, I'm going to give it to you and your seed forever. Okay? So... If they've never had it, you know, how can God keep that promise? Okay. Well, does anybody remember in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, what did it say about Abraham? He was seeking after a heavenly country. Okay. What God, God will keep this promise to Abraham, but it's not going to be with a physical, it's with that heavenly country. And we are all a part of that. Y'all understand that? That's why we don't get caught up in land issues here on this earth. This world is not our home. We are looking for that heavenly country. That's why we sing songs. When we sing songs like Beulah Land, when we sing songs like Marching to Zion, we don't sing those songs, you know, thinking about a physical land. We're singing about heaven, aren't we? Because we're looking for that heavenly country, the same land that Abraham was looking for. And so understand that this promise is going to be fulfilled, but it's going to be a heavenly inheritance. And I do believe there's going to be a physical fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, there will be a physical fulfillment. But you say, but Abraham and all of them are dead. Exactly. That's why there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Because there's going to be that millennial kingdom because there are many prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled and all those things are, during that millennial kingdom, that's when many of these Old Testament prophecies that never were fulfilled are going to be fulfilled. But understand, those prophecies are going to be fulfilled through a physical people that people are saying this is going to be fulfilled in the future with the physical Jews. No, it's going to be fulfilled with the spiritual ones. It's going to be, fulfill, it's going to be fulfilled with the ones of the resurrection. You know why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And that's why it's so ridiculous when people make the land about a physical people. No, it's not about flesh and blood. It's a spiritual thing. And Hebrews proves that. And we'll probably uh, cover more of that uh, when we get to certain chapters. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. But, you know, one thing that we constantly see with Abraham, whenever he's going to these different places, he's building altars to the Lord. And Abraham, he was a man who truly loved the Lord. He was somebody who had a heart that was fixed on serving God. And this attitude is ultimately what led him to being so faithful that he was willing to offer up his only son, Isaac. He was willing to do that. And because he was willing to do that, because he was willing to offer up his son, you know what he was known as? He was known as the friend of God. Because God, in his foreknowledge, okay, knew this is something I am going to do someday. 
God knew one day he was going to sacrifice his son for the world. And so when God saw Abraham, a man who was willing to sacrifice his own son, God knew what that felt like for Abraham. That, that, that's why we're often friends with people, isn't it? Because there's something we can relate with, right? We have, there's something that we have in common. And, you know, often certain things too, the more unique that, you know, thing is that you have in common, often the closer that friendship can be. And that, and so think about that. How many people are out there that are willing to give up their son? Like that. You know, not many. But we see that Abraham was. And we see that God the Father was. So it makes sense that Abraham would be called the friend of God. And so Abraham, he was, he was a great, he was a great example of faith, someone who was seeking after the Lord. And that's why, that's why his house succeeded. That's why he ended up being blessed. Lot obviously did not do that. Lot, when he went to Sodom and pitched his tent towards Sodom, he was looking for the financial gain. He was looking for, you know, a place to be good for his cattle. He wasn't thinking about, I got a family here. I've got a house that I'm supposed to command. I'm supposed to be following the Lord. And there is no doubt because of what the New Testament says that Lot was a saved man. The Bible calls Lot a just man. He calls him a righteous man. And that's another example, too, of proof that they were not saved by works in the Old Testament. The Bible called Lot, no doubt, a not good man at all. Living in Sodom, you know, willing to give his virgin daughters to a bunch of Sodomites. A guy who did what he did, drunk with his daughters. All the things that Lot did wrong, his, his descendants did not turn out good. God called him a just and righteous man. How could that be? In what world could anyone call Lot just and righteous? I'll tell you, in a world where they're looking at Christ's righteousness instead of his righteousness. In a world, Lot obviously had imputed righteousness. Where did he get that from? We get that from Jesus Christ. Right? I mean, Lot, great example, great proof of that. And, and, so, and, that, and the thing is, too, that people forget, and something we're going to start seeing, too, as we get into some of these later chapters, a lot of the doctrine that we teach on salvation, a lot of it comes from the book of Romans. And did you know that when we are preaching from Romans about salvation, how it's not of works, the Apostle Paul was actually preaching from Genesis? Because he keeps referring back to Abraham, doesn't he? So we learn from Genesis that salvation is not of works. We learn the gospel in Genesis. And we're, we're going to see it. We're going to see it. We're going to see it when Abraham sacrifices Isaac. We're going to see the gospel in Genesis. Our gospel. The gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection. It's all there in the book of Genesis. And Lot obviously got it because we've got a wicked man who the New Testament refers to as just and righteous. That's what we are, ladies and gentlemen. Because we have imputed righteousness. Thank God for that. Thank God that it has always been around. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Dear God, I pray that this uh, will be a help. Lord, I pray you'll help us to learn from Lot's mistake here. Help us to uh, focus 
uh, on our family and raising up our house in the right way that we won't get sidetracked by the things of the world, the possessions that this world has to offer, but we will uh, focus on the spiritual uh, over the financial. And I pray you'll just uh, help us to uh, just continue learning some great lessons and great truths as we go through the book of Genesis. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's go ahead.